Salut, bienvenue, hello there, and welcome to City Breaks Toulouse, episode 8, Two Excursions. Having spent a little bit of time outside the city centre in the last episode, along the lovely Canal du Midi, I thought perhaps today we'd try two more excursions, which are very easy to make from Toulouse, not too far in a car, and certainly both accessible by public transport, and both with wonderful things to see. So I'm going to devote the first half of the episode to the lovely medieval city of Carcassonne. You've probably seen its citadel silhouetted against the skyline on the million postcards. And then secondly, we're going to visit Albi, home of one of the most memorable cathedrals I think I've ever seen, and more particularly, home also of the Toulouse-Lautrec Museum. He's an artist we tend to associate with Paris, but Albi was his hometown and the place where, after his death, his mum set up the Toulouse-Lautrec Museum, stuffed full of his artwork. So then, to start with Carcassonne. There's lots to see, of course, but given that we're only going for a day out from Toulouse, I'm going to confine myself to talking just about the higher part of the town, the Cité, the ancient walled part, which is probably where you're heading first. Henry James, the American author, went to Carcassonne, in 1882, and wrote about it in a book called A Little Tour in France, and he was very taken with it, writing that, quote, Everything in the Cité is little. You can walk around the walls in 20 minutes. He may have found that, but it's also absolutely steeped in history, wonderfully atmospheric, especially if you manage to go when it's a bit quieter, so maybe early or late in the day or a bit out of season. But anyway, lots and lots to see, and history oozing out of every piece of stonework. So, to start with the history then, just very briefly, occupied since Roman times, somewhere that stayed prosperous though even after the collapse of the Roman Empire, partly I think because of its position on a hilltop overlooking a river. You could see enemies coming, you could chase them away. Prosperous, lots of passing traffic, people en route between the Mediterranean and the Atlantic would come past Carcassonne, and it became a very desirable place to settle. Because of that, it was often attacked and usually, but not always, as we'll come to see, managed to hold firm. If you're wondering where the city's rather strange name comes from, I can tell you that there's a legend that will explain that, and it comes from the 8th century, from the time when there was a Muslim prince ruling in the city, one Balak, and unfortunately things came to a sticky end for him because he was killed fighting the Emperor Charlemagne, so at that point his wife took over. She was called Karka, C-A-R-C-A-S, and under her, unfortunately, the town fell under siege. Charlemagne's troops were all around, threatening to come in and take over the city, and Karka could see that her actual number of troops was dwindling. Force wasn't going to help her hold out, so she'd have to turn to subterfuge and be a bit clever about things. So the first thing she did was she ordered her forces to make straw men and prop them up all around the battlements so that Charlemagne's troops would think the place was still very well guarded. And she also wanted to sow the idea that they had plenty of food left and could last and hold out for much, much longer. So she got the last pig and the last bag of wheat. If, by the way, you're wondering what there was a pig doing in a city ruled by Muslims, I did say it was a legend. There may be some details that have grown in the telling. Anyway, it's said that she fed the pig the last bag of wheat, then had him slaughtered and thrown, tossed over the side of the castle. 
So when he landed at the feet of the soldiers, they were horrified, thinking that the people in there still had so much grain that not only did they have enough to eat themselves, they were feeding it to their pigs. And at that point, they gave up and went home. So, of course, that's a great victory. And it said that the church bells were rung out in jubilation. And the townspeople began the cry of Gaka, the lady in question, of course, and Son, the word for the bells are ringing. Gaka Son, Gaka Son. Kakao is ringing the bells. And that's where the name came from. Moving on in history then, a key date is 1209, when Christian Crusaders arrived. More about that in a minute. That's the most exciting part of the story, really. I want to give that a bit more time. So we'll just finish the overview first by saying that later on in the 13th century, the city came under the control of the King of France. It was burned down in 1355 by the Black Prince, but generally, during the medieval period, it was relatively prosperous. 17th century, though, different story, went into gradual decline, fell into a state of disrepair, and was more or less abandoned. And that could have been that, it could be a ruined castle on a hilltop, but in the 1840s, the idea began to be put about that maybe they should restore it. In 1853, one Louis-Napoleon decided he would appoint somebody to oversee all the medieval buildings in France and do something about their upkeep. And the man he chose, most wonderfully named, was one Eugène-Emmanuel Viollet-le-Duc. By the time he came to Carcassonne, he was already quite well known. He'd worked on the restoration of the Sainte-Chapelle in Paris, for example. Wonderful building, don't miss that if you go to Paris. Anyway, he came to Carcassonne to restore the citadel and took a look round, decided what to do, and the whole thing turned into a 50-year project. has to be said that what he did wasn't popular with everybody. It's said that he had an approach that meant he would restore castles using what was called a mix of historical knowledge and imagination. Here in Carcassonne, for example, it said that the arrow slits and some of the crenellation that he added had never actually been there in the first place but they looked very pretty. Viollet-le-Duc was quite upfront about this himself. I've seen a quote of his saying that his approach to work was, quote, to restore a building to a state of completeness that may never have existed. So if historical accuracy is your big thing, you might be slightly less impressed. But if you know that the citadel at Carcassonne is used in pictures so often to represent medieval France and that the city itself is one of the biggest tourist draws in the whole country, then you have to say whatever the architectural pedants think, the general populace likes it very much. OK, so let's go back a moment to the time of the siege, which is the most interesting part of the history that I wanted to tell in a little bit more detail, so that when you go round the citadel, you're very aware of some of the things that happened inside in those times. So the date is 1209. The King of France has learnt that there are Cathars living inside quite a lot of towns in Languedoc-Roussillon, Carcassonne included, and he's very against this. He wants them removed and the Catholic Church restored. So a crusade is called. Thousands of knights and their attendants come marching down or riding down, mainly from the north of France. Before they got to Carcassonne, they went to Béziers, another stronghold of Cathar belief, which they besieged, broke in and slaughtered 20,000 people. So, sitting in Carcassonne is the Lord, Raymond Roger de Trancavel, and obviously all the people, thinking what is going to happen when they come here. Sure enough, they were besieged. They held out for really quite a long time. Trancavel decided he would 
negotiate. He got himself safe conduct to go and negotiate with the leader of the Crusades, Simon de Montfort, of course. But in fact, that went badly wrong because he was imprisoned, died in prison, in fact, a few months later. And so the new Lord of Carcassonne became Simon de Montfort himself. As you know from an earlier episode, he was eventually killed, besieging Toulouse. His son took over, wasn't quite such a personality as his father, and the result of that was that one of the Trancavels came back to rule. But all of this besieging and warmongering was taking its toll, and in the end, Carcassonne decided to become a royal city to open its gates to Louis VIII. 1226 this was. And so Carcassonne was no longer independent. A lot of the building work took place after that. That was the plus side of being ruled from Paris. Armies of masons and carpenters and military engineers and, of course, Viollet-le-Duc himself came down and did what they could for the city. But not only did the French king have designs on the city, so too did the Catholic Church. And they also had a massive impact. This being known, you've probably heard of it, as the Inquisition. Run largely in this area by Dominican monks, A lot of them weren't even from the region. They arrived and they had little understanding of all the established practices of the area or the local customs and really held a reign of absolute terror. So they would arrest suspected Cathars, question them, torture them and sentence them. If you have a gory frame of mind, you can think of all of that when you're going round the chateau. You see, for example, a room called the Judge's Room with a fireplace in it, which is carefully labelled as having been the place where they used to, quote, heat the instruments of torture. If you were suspected of being a Cathar, or indeed of harbouring Cathars, you would be subjected to the Inquisition. If you confessed, you would have to swear your allegiance to the Roman Catholic Church, and you would be, sometimes for the rest of life, forced to wear a yellow cross on your clothing so that everybody would know that you had been a traitor. More serious suspects, actual heretics, were imprisoned in the cells below the tower and it was not unknown for people to be walled alive in the prison and endure a lingering death by starvation. Actually, even that wasn't the end of all their troubles because corpses would then be exhumed, tried post-mortem and if convicted, the church would decree that it had the right to take the property of the people and their heirs. A very murky story indeed. So, I hope knowing all that will add to your enjoyment of looking round. Let's move on to what there is actually to see and do in the Citadel at Carcassonne. I think the obvious thing to do is to walk round the walls. Spectacular views in all directions. About three kilometres long. We've already heard that Henry James thought it was a 20-minute walk. I think if you're going to enjoy it and look at things, it might take a bit longer. 52 towers en route, for example. And you'll notice that there are actually two sets of walls with a space in between, an area known as Les Lys. And when you're looking at those, you can imagine what used to happen there, which is things like the knights holding their jousting competitions or military drills. And you may well find, if you go in tourist season, that there are demonstrations of such things, mock tournaments, etc., being held. Inside the chateau itself, of course, you can look at all the plaques telling you about the Inquisition. But you can also look out for a 16th century bust of Dame Carca herself, the person after whom the city was named. The original's inside the chateau, and there's a replica up on the walls outside as you approach the city. There's also a church, Basilique Saint-Nazaire, 11th century. Lots of highlights there, things like beautiful stained glass windows from the 14th, 15th, 16th century, large religious statues a siege stone from the 13th century with a carving of the city under siege on it, 
possibly in fact believed to have been part of the original tomb of Simon de Montfort. But actually, what you really probably want to do, I would say, is wander about, get the general atmosphere, the tiny streets, the citadel, stop at one or more of the little restaurants, that sort of thing. If you haven't had enough blood and gore inside the chateau, there is a museum of torture instruments as well, so if you're of a particularly strong stomach, you might want to go to that. And just to finish off in Carcassonne, I'd like to add that if you go on Bastille Day, you will find what is described usually as the second most spectacular fireworks held in the whole of France on the National Day. Paris, of course, being number one. And after that, it's Carcassonne. I don't know if you'll get anywhere near or be able to park if you go on that day. But if you do, I'm sure you'll see a fantastic spectacle. So then, that's my first suggestion for a day out from Toulouse, Carcassonne. Equally easy to get to is the city of Albi, A-L-B-I. Again, a Cathar town, though very atmospheric, but also with some cultural pursuits. It's got one of the cathedrals that I can best remember from all the many cathedrals I've visited, and it's got a museum dedicated to that most iconic of 19th century French artists, Toulouse-Lautrec. There are medieval streets, There are some of those fine 15th, 16th century mansions that you get in Toulouse, built just like the ones in Toulouse on the wealth gained from the woad industry. But for sure, the main attraction in the city centre, a UNESCO World Heritage Site in fact, is called La Cité Episcopale, the Bishop City if you like, which is really comprises two main buildings, La Cathédrale de Sainte-Cécile, the cathedral, and Le Palais de la Berbie, which is the building which houses the Toulouse-Lautrec Museum. So, if we start with the cathedral, briefly, largest brick-built cathedral in the whole of Europe, apparently, dating from 1282. Didn't say in the guidebooks, but I read somewhere else that actually the building of it, look at the date, 1282, was financed by money collected, shall we say, during the Inquisition after the Cathar defeat. So that gives you a slightly different take on the atmosphere. I saw it described, actually, and I think it was the rough guide, as, quote, a bastion of militant Catholicism in a region plagued by heresy. But nevertheless, if you go inside, there's lots to see, 15th century statues, a treasury with reliquaries in it, etc. But what makes it truly memorable is the fact that when you first go in, the main body of the cathedral is covered not just from floor to ceiling, but actually the whole of the walls and the ceiling in the most wonderful paintings. They brought Italian painters in from Bologna in the early 16th century, 1509, I think, and they were tasked with creating this colourful frieze nearly a 100 metres long of just amazing pictures. The church's own leaflet describes it as follows, a genuine biblical encyclopaedia on a blue and gold background, an evocation of heaven around the Christ in glory. And yes, it really is absolutely stunning. A really memorable impression is made there. And if you manage to go in the summertime, I think two or three afternoons a week at about four o'clock, there are free organ recitals. And I can imagine fewer things more idyllic than wandering around looking at that lovely artwork with some nice music being played for you as well. But you've probably come to Albi not so much for the cathedral, but more because you know that the Musée Toulouse-Lautrec is there. So let's go there and see what there is to find out. Albi was the hometown of Toulouse-Lautrec, the place where he spent his childhood, a difficult childhood because he was disabled, and the place from which he eventually escaped to Paris, which is where we think of him being, I think. He became, 
He made his name there and became known as, quote, the painter of the Belle Epoque, or the artist who did the Moulin Rouge posters. But he did come back to Languedoc-Roussillon on occasions, and after he died, I think he was only in his 30s when he died, his mother devoted the rest of her life to establishing this Musée Toulouse-Lautrec here in Albi. Let's take a moment for a little bit more biographical detail and a rundown of the main things to know about his work, and then I'll finish by telling you about some of the things you can actually see here in the museum in Albi. To give him his full name, Henri-Marie Raymond de Toulouse-Lautrec-Montfin was born here in Albi in November 1864. Mum and Dad, Adèle and Alphonse, were in fact first cousins. I think the cause of his disability is often attributed perhaps to that fact, and he was born, as you can tell by his rather amazing name, into a very well-off family. His forebears had been lords of three different lands, Toulouse, the town of Lautrec, which is about 20 minutes away from Albi, and a little commune called Montfin, which had its own chateau. But poor Henri didn't have a very happy childhood, really, because he was plagued by illness and disability. He himself has written about how bored he used to be. He talked about long, burning summers in Albi, with nothing much to do. He said, in fact, his only entertainments were, quote, going to mass and planning his summer trip to the spa in Barège. He was taken to Lourdes on occasion to pray for a miracle, that he would be made well. And he spent a lot of time at home in Albi, sometimes recovering from things like he would fall over. He fell over a lot. He would break his leg. He'd be housebound again. As a young adult, this was shown to have taken its toll. He was committed to a mental asylum and subject to a lot of local gossip and terrible, really hurtful criticism. I'll read you an article which appeared in the Paris newspaper, in fact, talking about the sort of waste of space that the journalists thought him to be. Quote, The last descendant of a worn-out lineage, a caricature of his forefathers, puny, stunted, deformed, his virgin palette and his unused brush, like a shield that was seldom dented, and a sword that remained too often in its scabbard, proved only too well that all he had inherited from his ancient blood was a fondness for pleasure and a distaste for that proletarian virtue, hard work. He had in fact left the family home in Albi after he'd been discharged from the mental hospital and set off alone for Paris, with no idea really what he was going to do or who would take care of him, but just with a yearning to be there. There too he soon gained a reputation I found a quotation in a book called Toulouse-Lautrec, A Life by Julia Frey, which summed up the way that most people thought of him in his Paris days. Quote, he could be found every night with his cane and bowler hat in the bars and dance halls of Montmartre, frequently drunk and disorderly, and always sketching. But as we know, he completed a large body of work that was very popular and has remained popular ever since. But his life came to a sad end. In 1901, he came back down to the south, spent his last summer there, looking very thin, very worn out, very unwell. And in September 1901, he had a stroke and died. And it was at that point that his mother, who lived another 30 years, devoted the rest of her life to establishing this museum that you can visit here in Albi. So, turning to look at his actual work, well known, of course, for all sorts of different things, paintings, drawings, lithographs, posters, and seen as really a social critic, a historian. He was said to have painted the suffering of the working class in 19th century Paris. 
He detailed, for example, the bleak, bored existence of the Parisian prostitutes, showing that he wasn't afraid to break taboos. When he painted portraits, they were often quite revealing, people he professed to like or admire, but not necessarily very admiring portraits, just really trying to capture them as they actually were. Talking of taboos, he also is well known for his series called Dans le lit, In Bed, a series which showed a number of lesbian embraces. But, of course, in addition to his painting, he was really very well known for his posters. He was commissioned at one point to do posters as advertising for places like the Moulin Rouge and some of the other clubs and dance halls in Paris. And he proved to be very good at that. He knew that the poster had to be instantly effective and unforgettable. And in order to achieve that, he wasn't shy of painting rather sexy pictures. Things like the dancer La Goulou performing with great gusto and lifting up and showing her bloomers to the audience. Images, it turned out, that did the job at the time, got lots of people to go to the clubs and have stood the test of time as well, been loved and recognised ever since. Julia Frey, in the Toulouse-Lautrec book, puts it like this. Quote, Lautrec's style is instantly recognised worldwide. His posters remain so popular that today they are virtually commonplaces of advertising art, found on shopping bags, ashtrays and dish towels the world over. Well, good for him. I like to think that the man described as, quote, an alcoholic aristocratic dwarf had the last laugh and became world famous. As for what you can see here in this museum, a great range of his work, said to be the largest collection of his works anywhere in the world, over 200 paintings, 200 plus drawings, 31 different posters. And the museum's divided into sections so that you can see, for example, a room or two of something labelled youthful works. It's known that he drew constantly as a child. His father and his uncles were all good drawers and used to work on things with him, influenced perhaps by the fact that he was at home so much because of his disabilities. A family friend who taught him noted that he had, quote, a prodigious mimetic skill. So you can look at some of those, and then there's a section devoted to his portraits. A lot of 19th century artists did portraits, of course. In most cases, the reason would be that that was where the money was. People would pay you to paint their picture. Toulouse-Lautrec must have enjoyed doing them for its own sake, we think, because he didn't have the need to earn any money. His family background could supply all of that. So he just loved painting people. Mainly he chose friends and family and fellow painters. And of the portraits that you can see here, two that I remember particularly, one of his mother sitting, looking very reflective at a table. Poor woman, she must have had a really great worry with this son who was so different from other people and had such difficulties fitting into life because of his health. And you sort of see all that in her expression, maybe, in the picture. And then there's another portrait of one Désiré Dio, who I think was a friend of Toulouse-Lautrec's, wearing a top hat sitting in a cane chair in a garden reading his newspaper. The contrast of his dark suit against the swirls of lovely blue and green and mauve which suggests the garden. There's another section which we could file under the title Brothels. Very striking paintings, not just because of the subject matter which was of course quite outrageous but also because of the way he treated his subjects. Here's an extract from the museum's guidebook which explains this much better than I can. Quote, Toulouse-Lautrec was much more than a simple customer of the Brussels that were so numerous in late 19th century Paris. At once participant and spectator, he saw and drew everything. He got involved in the everyday lives of the prostitutes, 
was liked by them and knew many of them personally. Some became friends and sat for him in his studio. He appreciated the establishments in the Rue de Steinkerk and Rue d'Amboise, but his favourite was the one at 24 Rue des Moulins, where he sometimes spent several nights in a row. On some evenings he took the brothel Madame to the theatre, and in 1892 she commissioned him to paint a set of sixteen medallions of her girls for the waiting room. The years 1893 and 1894 were the richest in paintings and drawings on this theme. A curious, sensitive man, Lautrec always showed respect for his models as people and for their work. He did not judge or denounce, but observed, putting down what he saw and felt on the canvas or paper. Destitute young women in the fake luxury of their salons. For him, each brothel scene was a tableau vivant, an image of life on the margins. He represented the women as they were, without provocation or voyeurism. We never see them with clients, whereas we do in Degas and Forin's pictures. And without a trace of sentimentality, he painted these women alone or in small groups, as in The Friends. In their rooms he heard their secrets, their conversation, and registered their everyday moments or actions. The painting that was referred to there, The Friends, is here in the museum, shows two of the prostitutes between customers just relaxing together. There's another one called At the Dressing Table, and one called A Woman Combing Her Hair, both of which just capture everyday moments and and show the girls as real people. There's another one called The Salon in the Rue des Moulins, which shows several girls caught in a moment of real life, just waiting, lost in thought, one's half in, half out of the painting, really looks almost like a little snapshot. There's a, another room again in the museum, entitled Parisian Scenes, because Toulouse-Lautrec was very well known for those two. He captured the dances and the cafe concerts and the theatres, the nightlife generally of fin de siècle Paris. He liked the bohemian crowds in Montmartre, and his paintings include all sorts of people you would have seen there in those days, so maybe penniless painters, destitute singers, down-at-heel music hall performers. Moments of gaiety too, on stage perhaps at the Folie Bergère, for example, but often seedy moments too, so there's a painting in the museum called The Hangover, which shows a solitary, rather down-at-heel woman just sitting at a cafe table, staring ahead. She's got a bottle and a glass in front of her. And then the last section of the museum is devoted to his posters. It's got the first one that we know about, which was painted in 1891, the Moulin Rouge, it's called. It's a bold painting of La Goulou, who was one of the famous dancers of the day. She's dancing the cancan at the Moulin Rouge, a very colourful painting full of movement, set against a background of black silhouetted figures, so she really stands out. There's another poster that I think everybody's probably seen long before they get to the museum for a club called Les Ambassadeurs. That again features somebody who was well known at the time, Aristide Prouvain, think he was some kind of impresario and there he is in a red scarf and a black hat. We know that for Toulouse-Lautrec these posters were every bit as much artwork as all his other works, his drawings and paintings and so on. There's a description of this in the guidebook which reads as follows. Toulouse-Lautrec not only conceived the drawings and cartoons, he also threw himself into the making process for posters. After drunken nights in the cabarets of Montmartre, he would often be up at the crack of dawn to pull the proofs with the printers. His secret? The ability to simplify form, an innate sense of composition using oblique lines and planes, and pure colour. He generally used four colours, yellow, red, blue and black, 
combined with a decorative line taken from Japanese prints. So there you have it, there's definitely a pleasant morning or afternoon to be spent in the Toulouse-Lautrec Museum. The two towns from today's episode leave us very much with two very iconic pictures of France, the silhouette of the Carcassonne Citadelle and that body of artwork by Toulouse-Lautrec from the town of Albi, a set of paintings, posters, drawings which seem to say France to a worldwide audience. How many of those are bought as souvenirs, do you think, by people who visited Paris, for example? We all know some of those paintings. We've seen them in undergraduate bedsits or on biscuit tins in arty cafes. And whenever we see them, they make us think of France. So two excursions, both just a stone's throw from Toulouse, which I would very much recommend to anybody who's got the time to make them. That ends today's episode then. Just time for a very brief look ahead at next week, which will in fact be the last episode in the Toulouse series, and which I'm going to devote to all things gastronomic. We must, of course, talk about cassoulet, the signature dish of Toulouse, but there are lots of other goodies that we can have a look at as well, oysters, duck, confit, wine, etc. I plan to share with you some quotes from various people who've been to markets and restaurants in the area, one of whom wrote the most marvellously titled book, A Goose in Toulouse. We must have a quick look at that. So lots to look forward to. I hope you'll agree. I hope you'll be able to join me then. For the meanwhile, though, just remains for me to thank you very much for listening. Merci. And to wish you goodbye until next week. Au revoir.